I pass you in the hallway, and you ask how I'm doing. I answered, but I wasn't honest. You see, I, I try to smile, but it just doesn't always happen. I come in here, and I, I hear the people singing. I listen to the pastor speaking. But my mind is just constantly going. And I know that there are people that have needs around me, but I've spent so much time just thinking and going back and forth where I feel like I'm, I'm caring less and less about those people. So if I were to sum up how I'm feeling when you ask, ask me, I would just say that I'm frustrated. See, I know a lot of truths about God. And I just don't know if I have a relationship with Him. At least not a dynamic one. And it, it seems like God, everything that He's done has been in the past. He, he created the world. He, he died on the cross. And then He inspired this Bible to tell us all about it. And then, then He gave us this mission. And He just left in the clouds. It's, it's like a busy teacher that gives this assignment to the students, leaves the room, and now the students have to figure out how to do the assignment on their own. And this relationship, I try, and I, I try hard to, to pray, and I, I pray to a God that's, that somewhere, somehow, hopefully he'll help me, but the, there's no vibrant interaction with that God. And I, I read the Bible and I see God speak to his people. He comforts them. He corrects them. They have an interaction with him. And I'm wondering, am I just been born in the wrong place? Have I been born in the wrong time? Do I have to go to heaven to be able to relate to a God like that? And I just, I just keep growing frustrated by the situation where this assignment that we've been given... There's just always something that has to be done. There's another person that has to be reached. There's another Bible that has to be translated. There's another orphan that needs to be adopted. And I've gone through my summers where I have spent time with those activities, trying hard to do something for this God. But then winter comes around and I feel this despair. And I just gradually begin to tune out all these global needs. And I know that's wrong. I just don't know what to do about it. I, I just don't know what to do about it. And I, this, there, and then another problem arises within me where I, I, this disconnect from God leaves a yearning in my heart and this boredom. And I start yearning for this, these, this dark appetite. And, once again, I know these simple indulgences are wrong. I just don't know what else to do. They feel, they, I feel them. They're, they're there. I can interact with them. And I, I'm just standing here as a burnt out man who, who's just wondering, can God be experienced? And so I, I believe in Jesus. I just don't know if I really know him. Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3. Would you join me in thanking Josh McMillan for the last three weeks and the monologues that he's done? 
Josh and Lydia are a gift to our church. God has blessed us with them. Um, we're thankful for them. Josh is talented and uh, memorized those scripts every week. So I'd like to tell you he got them like three weeks ago. He got that one on Thursday afternoon. So we appreciate him a lot. All right. So somebody tell me what happens two days from now. What is two days from now? Exactly right. It's Reformation Day. I tricked y'all, right? In a church. How many of y'all knew it was Reformation Day? There you go. I see that hand, Charles. I see that hand, that one hand. Y'all know what Reformation Day is? It's the day we celebrate Martin Luther, right? And here's what's interesting about this particular year. Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg 500 years ago Tuesday. It's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. It just so happens that it falls on the same day as this minor holiday we have in America called Halloween, right? Now let me ask you a question about Halloween. I won't, I won't bore you with too much detail about Martin Luther and the Reformation. Um, why do you think people like Halloween? Why has it become such a big event? It's bigger today than it was when I was growing up. My guess is, for many of you in this room, it's bigger today than it was when you were growing up. Right? Why do you think Halloween has become such a big deal? What do people like about it? Scary, but there's this part of us that, there's some part of our soul that likes to be scared a little bit, a little creepy. Candy, right? How many of you here like a piece of candy every now and then? I see it. Yeah. Look, look how many more hands came up that knew what Reformation Day was. <laughs> it's all over the place. People are proud of that, all right? Somebody tell me your favorite piece of candy, your favorite kind of candy. Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. The first one came out was the correct answer. Correct. Good job. What? Somebody else? Snickers. M&M's. Hershey's Chocolate. Kit Kat, that's a good one right there. So I think candy has a part of it, right? Why, why else do you think people like Halloween? You get to dress up. You get to put on a mask. Be somebody different than you are normally, right? Now when I was growing up, costumes weren't quite as elaborate as they are today either. When I was growing up, it was the day of the suit with the plastic mask. Right, that had the, that I would break as a kid within the first five minutes and mom would have to safety pin it together. Alright? So that's when I was growing up. In fact, so maybe some of this will uh, ring true with you. I looked up the most popular costumes since 1969 on a kind of regular basis. It's interesting because it tells you what the culture's really into. Right? So for instance, in 1969, the most popular costume was Elvis. But in 1970, it was the Beatles. The world was changing, right? 1977 and 78, boys and girls were dressing up as Luke and Leia and Hans. 1982, it was a reemergence of a little red-headed girl who was an orphan, Annie. 1984, the Ghostbusters were on the scene. 1990, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. In the early 2000s, you had Harry and Hermione and Ron, the Harry Potter gang. 
In the last few years, you've had Iron Man and Captain America reemerge, Anna and Elsa. They get to dress up, be somebody different. My little uh, Ava, who's five, we had their uh, school had a trunk or treat last weekend, and she was Cinderella. And Susan did her hair up real big, and she even put just because it's it's you know it's she's starting to get her winter complexion, put just a little dab of color on her cheeks. I didn't like that at all, but I understand. And we went to the trunk or treat, and Susan was actually doing next door ministry here with our church. And so we, I took all the four kids, and we went to their school function. Our church had a booth there. We passed out 250 cards about our particular event. And we got home that night, and she said, Dad, when can I dress up again? I said, well, baby, we, we, we can do it at our first. She goes, well, Daddy, just lots of people told me how pretty I was tonight because I was Cinderella. Right? She got to be, for a night, she got to be Cinderella. Now, when I was growing up, my only goal in life was to be a professional baseball player. And so for five years in a row, that's how I dressed up for Halloween. Like, it's who you want to be. It's these these aspirational ideas of who you might be able to become. You like to pretend, put on a mask, wear a costume masquerade as somebody else from a different time or from a different place. You get to be somebody that you're not really all the time. Act like somebody you're not really, you really aren't. I think part of the reason people like Halloween is because it's a little bit of make-believe. A little bit of fun to kind of step into the shoes of somebody else. But what happens when that's how you live your life all the time? What happens when the, who you really are is not who you portray yourself to be? What happens when the mask is not just one time a year for fun, but it's every day of your life so that people won't see through what's really happening? Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about this concept of dead orthodoxy. We're going to finish that series up today. And we've been talking about this idea of being a shell of who we ought to be. Of people that put on an outward appearance of being believers or followers of Jesus. But in truth, in truth, they don't really have that relationship inside. We've been talking about these two verses of scripture. One from the book of Titus that says, they claim to know God. But they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. And then in uh, his letter to Timothy, But know this, hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, Rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. Holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. Wearing a costume of the godliness of God, but not really being, having the power inside of you. We're going to talk today about the question of, are we real? Are we just pretending? 
Are we really followers of Jesus Christ? Are we just wearing a costume to make everybody think we're okay? Revelation chapter 3. Now I know when I tell you to turn to Revelation, you get all excited. I'm going to tell you how it all is going to end. Well, we're not going to do that today. We're going to be in the first part of Revelation where it's a letter to the seven churches. And so whatever else Revelation is, and there's lots of debate out there about what Revelation is, what it teaches, what it says, how we understand it, what it means for the future. Whatever else it is, it is at its most basic element a letter written between John and a group of churches that he cared about. And so there are seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, and it's the circuit on which this letter would have gone. Now what I think is interesting about that is he didn't write, as far as we can tell, seven individual letters. So when he wrote a letter and they passed it around from Thyatira and Philadelphia to Pergamum and Smyrna and Laodicea, they all got to see each other's business. Right? Now, now they could have been good people and said, well, that's not addressed to us. Let's don't read that part. But these are church folk. They had to have prayer concerns. Now, to know how to pray for those people over in Smyrna, right? How do we need to pray for those Thyatirans, right? And so he writes these letters, and in each, in the letter, in the seven churches, he gives a declaration of who Jesus is. He gives a discussion of what they're doing good. He gives a description of what they're doing wrong. And then he gives them a command or something to take care of. Now that's the general way he does it. Some are outliers. In fact, the city we're going to talk about is an outlier. He says in Revelation chapter 3 verse 14 through 21, write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Now, here's the thing that I want you to know. Remember, this is John on the island of Patmos just off Jack, tell him I said hello. Just off the coast. And at Patmos, John is getting a vision from the Lord, and the Lord is saying, write to the angel that is in Laodicea. Now, just so you understand, the word angel in the original language, the word angel in the original text, just meant messenger. And most scholars, including myself, think that when the angel is used here, it's not a heavenly being, it is the pastor of the church. And so he's saying, write to the guy that's in charge of the church, that's preaching to the church, that's leading the church, write to their messenger, this message. And he's writing to Laodicea. Now, we know a lot about Laodicea just from research and people that have gone back in time. This is outside of Scripture. This is a city that was very prominent in that day. It was unusual in that it was high up. It was way up kind of on a plateau that people had to go up to get to. It was prominent in lots of ways. It was a center of banking for the ancient world. It had lots of money flowing in and out of Laodicea. It's a wealthy city. In fact, um, if you if you go to Nazareth and you look at the average home around the time of Jesus and the New Testament, in the average home in Nazareth was just a couple of hundred square feet. And that included where they housed their animals. Four, five, six hundred square feet. The first apartment Susan and I ever lived in was six hundred square feet. Tiny, right? 
If you go to Laodicea, houses were a couple of thousand square feet. Wealthier people, better off. Large homes. They were known for their clothing trade. They were kind of a fashion center. They were especially known for their black garments that would have been really dark. Now, that was important because back then, making dyes, creating that was a time-intensive process. And for them to make that took lots of effort and lots of input and meant that it was very expensive. They also had a reputation for being very good in medical endeavors, especially people's eyes. There was a salve, an ointment, a balm that they made in Laodicea that was used throughout the ancient world that people knew that is from Laodicea. But the one problem they had is they had no natural source of water. Now, around them, they had a couple of places that were really good with water. Hierapolis was this place that had these hot bath springs. 95 degree water year round for these spa-like treatments. People would go and sit there. They would go and get healthy there. They would go and, and sit in the soothing waters. And then right across from was Colossae. And Colossae had some of the coldest water you could find that was completely refreshing for people to drink. Laodicea didn't have any water. They had to build these elaborate sets of aqueducts from different springs that were miles away that would bring the water into the city. And the problem was, by the time it got to the city, there were two issues with it. Almost always it had been put some minerals and things in it that made it terrible to the taste. And it was neither hot nor cold. It was lukewarm. Now, some of you already know where this is going. But literally, the the town, the city of Laodicea was known for water that would make you sick. It was also a very proud town. They had a couple of major earthquakes. In fact, they had one in 60 AD, a major earthquake that almost destroyed the whole city. And they were very, very proud of the fact that they rebuilt the entire city without a single bit of help from the Roman Empire. They were proud people. Right to the angel of the church and Laodicea. Thus says the amen. That's the verifiable one. That is the true one. That is, you can trust me. The faithful and true witness. The one that always does what he says he will do. The one that is absolutely true and the originator of God's creation. I'm the one that started the whole thing. So these are the words of the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ, speaking to his church. I know your works. Now, here's the thing. This is where normally he would say, this is what you're doing well. But with Laodicea, he doesn't give anything they're doing well. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. I wish you were cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, some of you have a... a, a, a less uh, offensive version, spit. Not that spit's really good. But spit gives the thing like, mm, that's just not very good. I'm going to spit it out of my mouth. The word there is actually a retching vomit. Like stomach virus vomit. Now, remember what I said about their water system? What were they known for? They were known for water that would make you sick. 
Now, most of these people had been to Hierapolis. Most of them had been to Colossae. They had tasted the good cold water. They had sat in the soothing hot water. And when they are the ones in the middle, it's the thing they didn't talk about in town because they all knew it was the town problem. John, giving the words of Jesus to them, says, Your faith is like the water in your town. And then he goes on to attack other areas of their life. For you say, I'm rich. Wealthy. Banking system to rival anybody else. I become wealthy and need nothing. And yet you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now I want you to notice what I said that they were a sinner known for in the ancient world. They were known for their clothing, their beautiful black clothing. And yet he says, you think you've got it all because you've got this clothing industry, but you're in fact naked. They were known for their ophthalmology, their eye balm. And he says, you're known to be someone that can heal someone's sight, and yet you are blind. You're known as a banking center of the ancient world that you don't have any need for money and yet you are poor. What he's attacking here is their identity as a self-sufficient people who do not need anything from anybody. Next verse. I advise you. It's the only one of these churches that he says to them, I counsel you. I advise you. To buy for me gold or find in the fire so that you may be rich. That's not gold that you find in the streets. It's not gold you find in the bank. He's talking about a spiritual life. White clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. Not the black clothes you produce, but the white clothes of purity that comes from me. An ointment to spread on your eyes that you may see. Next verse. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and Repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he will eat with me. I want you to know something kind of about that last verse. That last verse is often used in evangelistic circles. And while I think the the idea behind it can be evangelistic, we have to remember that this particular verse was written to the church. And Laodicea, because they had all this wealth and because they had all this style and because they had all this ointment and because they were this proud people, was often the target of the Roman Empire who would send officers in. They would knock down the door, drag people out, and embarrass them in front of the community. And the contrast here is between those soldiers who would beat down the door and Jesus who gently knocks and says, Are you ready to respond to my invitation? If you do... I come in, I don't kick you out, I don't degrade you, I don't brutalize you. I simply sit down and have a meal with you and share my life together. It's really a tragic statement to a church. You think you've got good stuff and yet your spiritual life is lukewarm and pitiful, poor, blind, wretched, naked. And so the question that comes up into my mind as we think about this series of messages, as we think about what we've talked about over the last few weeks is, how do I know if that's who I am? How do I know if I'm living a Laodicean life? How do I know if I'm lukewarm instead of passionately devoted to Christ?
When he says to the people, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. How can we identify that's us? Because my desire is to not live a lukewarm existence. So I'm indebted to a book called Crazy Love by Francis Chan for this next list. But it is so good that I want to share it with you. Because in the midst of that book, he says, this is what lukewarm people look like. He says, lukewarm people go to church on a regular basis because that's what they were supposed to do. They give as long as it doesn't hurt their standard of living or sacrifice too much of their life. They choose to be popular over right, both in and outside of the church. They don't really want to be saved from their sin. They just want to be saved from the consequences and penalty of their sins. They're moved by the stories of those who do radical things for God, but they would never imagine trying something themselves. They rarely, if ever, share their faith with others because they're worried about what others would think of them. They gauge their morality by the culture around them, comparing themselves to those who do not know Christ. They have Jesus as only a part of their lives. They don't love Him with their heart, soul, strength, mind, and all that they are. They love others, but only after they've taken care of themselves. They serve God, they serve others, but there are limits to how much they will do. They do whatever is necessary to lessen their guilt. They are all about playing it safe in their personal lives, in their family lives, in their church's life. It's all about security and playing it safe. And they do not live by faith because they have established a life where faith is unnecessary to getting by on a daily basis. Chapter 3 says that if you live a lukewarm life, you will be vomited out of the mouth of God. And so the question becomes, when we begin to hear that we are that kind of person, we begin to hear that we are lukewarm, what do we do about it? And it comes in his counsel to them. He says, I rebuke and discipline those that I love. And so he gives us two things to do. He says, be zealous and repent. We're going to take those in opposite order, in backwards order, in reverse order. And we're going to talk about the two steps to curing lukewarmness. And the first one is, we repent. Repent. We just admit, Lord, this is where I am. This is who I am. I don't want to be there anymore. I mentioned Martin Luther and Reformation Day. Here's the interesting thing about that. When you look at the 95 theses, he wrote 95 problems with the church at that time. And he nailed them to a church door. Number one on that is, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. That our lives should be characterized by consistent repentance. So he says, first of all, repent. And then secondly, he says, obsess. That's not the word he uses. He uses the word be zealous. But the word zealous is an obsession. It means to have something that you're going after above all else. And he says, if you're going to return to me, if you're going to live for me, you must be zealous. You must repent of the life you've lived, the so-so, okay, get by life. And you must run to a zealous obsession with me. And in contrast to lukewarm people, obsessed people, give freely and openly. They love those who hate them and can never love them back. They care more about God's kingdom than their own lives. They live their lives in a way they connect with poor and oppressed people. They obey God more than worry about what other people will say. 
They serve gladly without limits. Whatever is needed, they will do. They consistently battle pride knowing that it is a sin that will bring them down. They are givers, not takers. They live in the light of eternity, not today, because they know we spend much more time on the other side of eternity than we ever spend here and now. They have a settled, passionate love for Jesus. They're more concerned about who they're becoming than how comfortable they are in the midst of it. And they find complete joy in Christ. They are passionately devoted. Be zealous and repent. Repent and obsess. Verse 20 is a call to us as believers. That the Lord is waiting, standing, ready to listen, ready to eat, ready to come in. Verse 21 says, To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what is said. So my question is simply this. Are you living a life passionately devoted to Jesus? Or is your existence more one that's just lukewarm? Let's pray together.